that's Gibeo. In October, I w- went to Princeton's She Roars conference. Roars, R O A R S. Um, <clears throat> and it's like a has to do with the mascot because our mascot is a tiger, you know. So she roars, right? Anyway, um, at first I didn't want to go. Because uh, they invite, or at least invited me, well before October. Um, but then, like, a week or so, like, something around there, around that, before the deadline, I felt like, oh, I really have to go. <laughs> because I guess I actually opened the invitation and I read the list of you know, events and people coming. And I was like, oh, this actually is really interesting. And you don't know me maybe, but I actually live uh, like 20 to 30 minutes away from where I went to college. So it's not really like I had some of the same issues as like some other people who wanted to attend the conference because they had to deal with like, you know, airplane travel, booking hotels, different things like that. And for me, it literally, you know, it would have been just a matter of like driving down (laughs) on the highway where I live to Princeton, getting there, parking in the parking lot that I always park in whenever I visit Princeton. And that would have been it. Then I could just go home every night. Like, so it wouldn't have been a big thing. So it's not like I didn't want to go when I said before I didn't want to go. It's not like I didn't want to go because of, like, the headache that that can be sometimes. I didn't want to go just because, like, I don't know. <laughs> um, my relationship with Princeton. Um, yeah, I just, I guess I didn't feel a reason, a, mo- a strong enough motivation to go, um, which may sound very, like, vague and mysterious, but, you know, why, oh, like, you may be thinking, oh, it's Princeton, like, why wouldn't you want to go to an all-female conference, you know, the school only just started accepting females in the 1970s, even though they started, you know, when did Princeton start? In the 1700s? <clears throat> So, you know, it's not like it's like a all-everyone conference where it's like all the men back for decades and decades and centuries. And then, <laughs> right, it's literally just going back like we're in 2018, going back like 50 years. So it's not even like it would have been that many people. Anyway, I decided to go. And the thing is, like, I really wanted to bring my mother. Um but they were predicting, like, record attendance. So they are like, oh, you can only bring yourself. So I was like, oh, great. Still decided to go anyway. And I'm kind of the person that, like, I mean, now anyway, before, like, I wasn't. But now I can show up to a place not knowing anyone there. And, like, that won't bother me. But before my life, if I had something to go to, like, I would at least... Even if I wasn't going with someone, I would at least want to know that there was, like, 
one person minimum there that I knew. <laughs> so that if I ever felt like that attack of like social anxiety or something, I could just go leech onto them. You know what I'm saying? For the duration of the event. So I don't feel like, oh, who do I talk to? What do I do? Where do I put my hands? Like what? Like what? What? Anyway, I went. Um, and it was good. It was good. Um, you know, there were a lot of interesting conversations. I was really interested in like the entrepreneurship conversations education there were different topics but the ones that i were you know that i really wanted to um the, the talks that i really wanted to go to because basically the whole conference was talks right and like these talks had like panels of speakers so the talks that i really wanted to go to were the ones like about like entrepreneurship education um you know the job hunt, like different like post-grad, young entrepreneur, young female entrepreneur, young minority entrepreneur problems. Like that's what spoke to me and still speaks to me, you know? So th- that's pretty much, this is me saying that the coming episodes that will be about or be from the She Wars conference those basically will be the topics. So if you already know, like, oh, I don't care about any of those things, um, and I don't even like Princeton, then you can tune out. Like, that's fair. But if you're interested in any of those things that I just mentioned, I mean, stay tuned, because I plan, hopefully, hopefully, inshallah, to release, you know, these episodes on a weekly basis, because I recorded so much. And literally what I would do it's not advanced. I would pull up my phone. <laughs> I would pull up my phone upon hearing something interesting. Okay. And just record right in the room that I was in. And, you know, looking back, I'm just wondering like why I had no like shyness about this because like some of the rooms I was in, really all of them, maybe except one, I'm pretty sure all of them. I'm the only like hijabi. So it's like, kind of people are staring at me already anyway but I you know Princeton is not like um I mean from what I've experienced weird about visibly Muslim people like they're fine I mean there was one woman staring at me a lot (laughs) um in one of the talks and I'm just like yeah I know what's on my head like but she wasn't staring like in a mean way she just was like oh I didn't know like, it's so good, like, that you are here. Like, that's kind of what her face was kind of saying. Like, wow. You know, how unexpected, but, like, kind of refreshing. Kind of. That's, like, the look. That's what I was reading. Um, could have read that completely wrong, you know. <laughs> um, but, yeah. So, basically, this episode, right, that this recording... Um, is on will be will have will be made up of composed of you know excerpts from different talks so yeah basically that's what this is going to be composed of yeah thank you for listening if you really listened 
up until now and then just, you know, forward the podcast player to the actual uh, episode. Which episode is this? This is, um, this would be... A Princeton graduate from graduate school. (laughs) I got my doctorate at the Woodrow Wilson School. And I will, in a conversation we'll have today, you'll hear us explain in a bit, play the role, at least for my last couple of jobs, as as a candidate, as someone who may have been on the receiving end of implicit advice. Great. So good to see you all here today. My name is Sue May. Today I work as a partner in an executive search firm that specializes in higher education. So um, my work essentially involves helping universities find presidents, vice presidents, deans. Um, I work with institutions all across the country, and I get the benefit of working with people like Kate every day to help find the right match between candidate and employer. So as you can tell from that, Sue sits on that side of the table, and many of us have sat on the other side of the table, and therefore we have a lot of insight, I think, and experience in this area. What we thought we would do this afternoon is go through, really, there's three things we'd like to get to, and one is to make sure that we're on the same page about what is hidden bias or implicit bias. We will also very much tell some stories, but we want to hear your stories and your questions as well. This is a room full of people who intentionally came to this session. We feel that there must be a lot out there that you'd like to know about or before like to share. And third, because we don't want to break the promise of the title of the session or the description of it, we do have some concrete advice. And we do have some thoughts and if not insights on how to overcome, is the word we use, how to overcome these bias and the bias. So what do we find out who's here? Yes. Yes. So we'll do a little raising of hands. This is this is a you know audience one on one, right? Find out who your audience is. So what? Great. All right. So uh, let's start with who are other graduate alumni here? Fellow graduate alumni. Oh, wonderful, fabulous. All right. Uh, let's do domains. Uh, raise your hand if you're in higher education. Raise your hand if you're in what we call the private sector or corporate. Most, most, I think that's more right now. Yeah. Raise your hand if you're in the government sector, public sector. Okay, very good. Raise your hand if you're in the nonprofit sector. Okay, we have a good, good mixture there. Raise your hand. I didn't say a sector. Raise your hand if you're exactly parenting. Thank you. Raise your hand if you're parenting. You're at home. All right, very good. And now Princeton has a reputation for placing folks in finance uh, careers. How many folks are in a financial world? Okay, good. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, was, was that a question for who works in a male-dominated industry? Yeah. <laughs> Who's actively 
actually in a job search right now and would be happy to pass out a business card later. Okay. <laughs> Great. Good. And we'll assume you came here because you're concerned about hidden or implicit bias. How many people think they've experienced a hidden or implicit bias? How many people have a story they would tell at some point during this interactive session with us? <laughs> okay, we have a few that's good. So we'll get a few heads up there. And we'll get note cards out. Yeah. For, for those who are coming in now, we have some note cards that may be floating around. Some people may not want to stand up. Oh, Bridget is, Bridget is playing the role of note card in or out. Yes, thank you. So if you want to jot down your questions on those as well, we'll take those down here and make sure we get those out. Others who may feel free and want to stand up and tell your story. Does that sound good? So let, let's begin this way. Sue, Sue has done some good work in thinking about hidden bias, implicit bias, observes it a lot. And so we want to get on the same page, make sure we're talking about roughly the same thing today. So Sue, why don't you start us off with what is hidden bias? Sure. So how many folks have gone through some sort of training or education or read about kind of the definition of hidden or implicit bias? Okay, a lot of you, a lot of you, great. So just to, we'll keep this brief, but just so we're all on the same page, the, this is a movement that is particularly strong in the universe in which Kate and I work, which is higher education. We're seeing more and more instances where campuses ensure that every time a hire is to be made, that the folks involved have gone through some sort of training to understand, identify, and try to manage implicit or hidden bias. The quick working definition of hidden bias, prejudices, biases, that we bring to the table in interacting with others. It's a cognitive shortcut is another way that people talk about it. These uh, shortcuts, these biases inherent in us. So, and we also want to acknowledge from the start here that we're sitting before you as white women with a lot of privilege to have come from this institution and from our own personal background. So we want to acknowledge that and also open the door for you to talk about bias in whatever way it may impact you. This is a women alumni podcast, but I would imagine in other sessions throughout today as well, you've all interrogated exactly what that means um, in all the different intersections around that identity. So we just want to make sure we state that up front. So the question is, if we all have hidden bias, um, what does that look like, particularly in a hiring and interviewing context, and what do you do about it? If we all have it, this is a conversation that I end up having a lot with my colleagues and with candidates and clients, if we all have it, what do we do beyond call each other out and help hold each other up to a higher standard? That's going to be the last section of our talk today. We want to talk about what you can do to address this, what's within your own power to address in a job search context. But first, we want to talk a little bit about and hear your stories about what this looks like in a context. So I uh, collected some of the things that I heard that I did, uh, in, uh, in the interview wonder what happens when you walk out the door. Uh, fortunately or unfortunately, I, I often uh, get to hear that conversation. Uh, Kate is then going to share some of the things she's heard, and I think she's going to survey her colleagues as well to get some of their chance. And then we'd like to hear from you uh, as well about what you've heard. So 
uh, some of the most common things I hear are, um, you know, that candidate when she interviewed, she said we too much. You know, did she really lead? Did she really take charge? Uh, maybe other people deserve the credit. On the flip side, I also frequently hear that candidate, she said I too much. Is she, is she bossy? Is she controlling? Um, is she collaborative? My least favorite comment is, I wonder what it would be like to work for her. Because the end of that sentence is not, I'm open as to whether that might be delightful or terrible, right? <laughs> it's pretty clear where the rest of that sentence was going. Uh, I've heard women uh, described as seeming too confident, uh, too blunt. I wonder about her communication style. Again, that's not an open-minded wondering where the weight might fall on the positive or the negative. Um, I've heard about male candidates. He just looks like a college president. There's a college president right here. Uh, uh, how does her family feel about her taking this job? Um, would her husband be okay being the uh, first, first man? Sometimes they get around to the same partner, but usually it's husband. Uh, I found her lipstick really distracting. Uh, An actual quote very recently. Um, I wish she would have worn some nail polish. So those are a couple of the things we've heard. And you know, the good thing is, thanks to conversations like this and increasing awareness that the sexist comment, the racist comment, the prejudice comment is rarely the uh, overt comment these days, but it comes out in language and comments like this. Um, when these comments are made, they generally get uh, interrogated by others around the room, myself or others on the hiring committee. Something that you've heard in your universe. I will um, and want to welcome those who are coming in a little late from lunch. We know that lunch went over, so let me explain to those who came in a little bit later. I'm Kate Foster. I've gone through two presidential searches and got them both. So there's something going on, right? And that's not about me as much as Tell. And Sue is a principal in a search firm, so sits on that side of the table and is in the room often when people are interviewing for high-level positions, mostly in higher education. And so we think we have a conversation and something to, to share about that. So we were talking just now about some of the things that Sue has heard after the candidate has left the room, a female can woman candidate has left the room, and what some of those comments are. So I went out to my colleagues, um, uh, really colleagues in my cabinet at the College of New Jersey, and I said, let's talk about this, both men and women. What experiences have you had about that implicit bias? How do you feel as a candidate that you've experienced or been on the other end of it? And let me begin with my own. I am, I am, I am five foot tall. Energetic, 
And a small woman who is energetic has a really has to worry about that to some degree because it's like you're like, you know, she's kind of petite and cute and cheerleady and so I work hard at that. So that's so the hidden bias I'm, I'm afraid of. I'm afraid of is usually that. But let me tell you a couple of what my colleagues said. So um, from one of my colleagues, an African American male, said that he walked into the interview room and the man who came in to interview him was an African American male, and he said his first thought was, "I won't get the job because they've already got one." <laughs> so, so that that feeling. Um, another one uh, came into uh, the room and he said, "This is an ageist comment." And the people said to him, so it looks like you're nearing the end of your career. So again, just you know, getting him off on the wrong foot from right at the get-go. And, and you know, perhaps testing him, who knows, but in any event, he remembers that one, needless to say. Just the flip side of that, one of the vice presidents at the College of New Jersey walked in and overheard others saying, she's probably too young for this position which is a real, you know, talk about this, you know, kind of things or really stopping people in their career pathway. Um, just a couple more. I have a woman on my cabinet in a male-dominated field in IT who said, this is the story of my career, to walk into a room and have the idea be, she just won't fit in with the guys. You know, this is IT, this is a tough male-dominated field, she's superb. And, um, and then another one, and this is a little bit different, but a, a woman, a Jewish woman on my cabinet who said, why do they always schedule the interviews and these things on, on Yom Kippur, for example, you know, so that I have to go through the, the you know, that whole thing. So uh, that was an interesting one. And then last comment about this was a, um, that, that code when people say, I've used this too, so I wanna kind of have some guilt about this. When people say, well, we're just looking for a good fit, well, depending on who's saying what we're looking for a good fit, that, that is full, that's full of hidden bias, right? Does that mean we're looking for someone who looks like us? Does that mean we're looking for someone who went to the same schools we went to? Does that mean we're looking for someone who ideologically is aligned with what we think we are? So that fit, that word of fit, I'm trying to get away from it now because I think I'm aware now, more aware than ever, that finding a good fit could lead to all sorts of more homogenizing and standardizing kind of outcomes that we might have in the interview process. <coughs> in, a, in my field, we talk more, we try to say match versus fit, but I'm not sure if match just becomes another, uh, just a synonym. Yeah, yeah. So, however, let's, let's, get, let's get some stories out there and then we have a couple too. And we'll, anybody want to either hand in a card or share a quick advice for them? Yes. Um, well, I really see you as a small, fast-talking woman, so thank you for <laughs> bringing that up. I went, I interviewed for a job when I was seven months pregnant and went through a, a, a very grueling interview process involving a lot of research that I had to do in preparation for the meeting. At the end of the interview, the person who was hiring said, are you really planning to come back to work after you have a baby? So that wasn't even it, but I was shocked. You're not allowed to say that, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> There you go. Yeah, exactly, that's nothing at all. By Denise Burgess, class of 84. Um, I'll tell your story, but it's not in an interview, because obviously I don't care what goes on after I leave the room. But here's a hidden bias that has happened to me so many times. And interestingly enough, I've spent the vast majority of my career living overseas. It only happens to you. I cannot tell you how many times 
someone just walked up to me and said, are you mad? I was like, um, <laughs> I'm reading a book. And I've had, so every one of those people, of course, was white. Everyone. I have never had a person of color ask me that question yeah. out of the blue for no reason. Yeah. It's unconscious bias. Right. Thank you. Hi, Wendy Berber, class of 80. So I had interviewed for a position that I, I think I was very well qualified for, and the woman I it was interviewing with said, you have such a great background, but you're overqualified for this position in terms of the level and salary. And I said, well, actually, I love this job, and I really, I think I could contribute, I'd love to have it, and there was no way I could get around it, and I'm curious about your thoughts. Yeah, let's jot that down as a, to get back on the whole salary <coughs> We're going to take some others in, but thank you. We've got that. And then, question down. My name is Kimberly Hoshaw, and I'm class of 81. And I will never, ever forget. I graduated so long ago, but I'll never, ever forget an interview at Career Services for an investment banking firm. These two guys, black guys, just stared me down. I mean, well, eyeballs were like staring at me. And it was just so clear, so very, very clear. It didn't matter what I said or didn't say. The answer was I didn't fit already. I'm Sondra Westfall with um, Class 89. I actually probably shouldn't say this out loud, but I interviewed for a job here at Princeton. <laughs> <laughs> and the people that were involved. Um, anyway, I thought in the interview I was full of ideas. I was never more confident in what I could contribute. I was enthusiastic. I thought we connected. Um, I was told afterward that I had a strong personality. Okay. Hi, Michelle Silver, from class of 2004. I have a ton of these, but um, I will do one. Um, when I interviewed for a job at one of my law firms, um, they told me, oh, you don't talk like <laughs> That's great. I also, I also wrote, uh, I've written a lot about implicit bias. One of the things I always write about was how I live in a very white neighborhood in Chicago, and I walk my kids around the neighborhood in Chicago a lot. My kids are biracial because they're half black, half white. And I'm always mistaken for the nanny. Every single time. I'm calling nanny, I'm asking how much I make, how much money am I looking for work. People steal nannies all the time, guys. <laughs> Don't ask a black woman if she's their child's nanny, it's awful. But yeah, so. My <laughs> I want to make sure you get a chance interview and pitching for a bigger role that I was qualified for the title I already have and they said to me, well, it really depends on how much you really want to take on at this point in your life. Did you ever say that? So. <laughs> it's amazing the care and concern. <laughs> Yeah, the stories are, we should all go out for something. 
have a lot of historians who are much present away in the graduate school, but a lot of us have gone to the financial industry, where it's just dudes all the way, and, and somebody made a comedy and fit right off the bat, right? It's just, it's just disgusting, I'm sorry to say. But so, you know, the stories are just, they require or something. But I actually do have a couple of specific questions. One is, I don't actually know if that's true statistically, and I'm a scientist, but it appears that most uh, professionals that work in human resources at various levels are women. So can you comment on how is it that, well, it appears that most of these positions are female, and we should be a little more sensitive about the whole issue, right? How, how is it that these issues are still sort of a big part of our hiring discussion? And uh, my other question is, so I'd love to hire women, all the time for everything, and everybody else who doesn't look like the majority, you know, white guys that I work with. Um, and I've done pretty well so far. I work in a biotech that has 60% of women across the board. That wasn't a design; it just so happened and spectacular. And it probably is hopeful that one of the people that is hiring there is a woman, so I don't just turn to the guy that happens to be sitting next door. I will look and I'll find the best candidate. But can you comment on? Um, kind of avoiding a bias in the other direction, right? In in uh, preserving, uh, you know, uh, a diversity of every variety is incredibly important. And as a reaction to what we're feeling a lot in our industries, any thoughts around we're not falling into, yeah, you know, I'd rather hire the girl than the boy. You know, that's obviously not productive. Hi, my name is Elsa. I'm class of 
or did he just say, you know, like, and it's, I still, I'm not sure how to deal with it, uh, like, seven years after graduating, so I'd like some Let's do a few more and then we'll pull we'll, we'll in. Yeah. Hello, everyone. I'm Ashley Darko, perhaps the only man in the room. I'd like to address the possibility of bias before you get paid. Um, I have a name that's very African-sounding, I'm yes. very African-looking. Uh, I've been in the job market here in the city for the hours where I also been here to face much less discrimination. I've recently returned to the States, and the only uh, interviews that I've been getting are related to Africa, yeah. even though my experience is far beyond that. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, Alessia Kimball, class of 90. I'm a physician and a CEO, and I am still mistaken for a nurse on a regular basis. Now, I tremendously respect what nurses do, so I'm actually willing to let that go. But what I think becomes more pernicious is situations, and this has been reported by female physicians as well, is there will be Dr. Smith and Alexa will be at the meeting. Um, and the disrespect that's in, in, embedded in that is really problematic. Um, one thing I want to pose for you to think about maybe at the end is, um, as an interviewer in Massachusetts, we now um, can't ask about what's your current salary, which is supposed to help neutralize some of the bias and what that offer would be. Um, but I'm observing a very interesting thing, which is we can ask what's your salary expectation, and the women are lowballing themselves. And then they come back two weeks later and go, no, I meant $30,000 more. <laughs> Um, and so I just want to, for the folks who are thinking about that as that's transitioning through, um, I've seen it several times, uh, and it's really undermining the whole, you know, concept behind that. Yes, and there's something I haven't seen the men love all themselves yet. Just for that. <laughs> so there's something there about knowing your field, knowing your work before you go in, because that's yeah. Absolutely. Um, thank you. I'm Hanjay, class of 2005. I also want to mention the situation where I'm the interviewer, interviewing candidates. Um, so, in my experience, I had interviewed a few young women, especially, where um, they didn't, uh, I don't usually tell people what my, my job title is, my job title is the head of product, but I don't mention the upfront, so often they think I'm the secretary, one of them was even asked to buy a coffee bar, <laughs> so, I thought I'm an interviewer to get a job, for um, a client relationship position. But I thought if you could talk a little bit about um, that perspective and also how women interact with women in that kind of situation would be really interesting. Thank you. Yes, yes. Sure. I don't know which way to look. <laughs> My name is Rebecca, I'm class of 2016. This is less of an interview situation, um, but at my first job out of college, uh, the CEO made a comment after I've been there for a year to the entirety of the staff, which were in the ages of 20s, basically, and there were about 40 of us, that he wasn't sure they should continue recruiting from the Ivy Leagues. Um, so you can understand why I didn't stick around. <laughs> so I don't know if anybody else has experienced a sort of backlash from being associated with an institution like Princeton, but we can, we can talk about that too. Yeah, but look, connected a little to the overqualified comments earlier too. You know, you won't stay because. Let's do a couple more, and then we're gonna we'll, we will pull up shut, and we'll 
talk a little bit then about some of the pathways into the comments we talked about, and then we put the FMP and we'll do it more. Hi, um, I'm Pernick Israel, I'm a 2000. Um, I'm a physician scientist in a very male-dominated subspecialty. I can speak to being called nurse to secretary. I can speak to having a foreign-sounding name. Um, and also, I interviewed for a job where a female interviewer asked me about my family situation. I did not have children. And she said, but if you take this job, then how are you going to have kids? How are you going to what? Have kids. Oh, have kids. One in the front, one in the back, and then so many people who want to talk. <laughs> uh, Clary Kidd, also class of 2000. I'm right here. Sorry. Um, and I, I actually, I have found in general, most of the women that I know, I work in finance, most of the women that I know feel the same way. Women don't tend to help other women that much, and so um, I'm just curious what you have to say about that. Um, I'm pretty new to the workforce, and I feel a lot of pressure to be likable in my interviews, and often I realize that I haven't um, put my skills forward and what I have to offer because I'm so concerned with being charming and amiable and likable, and I'd really love some advice. Yeah, for sure. <coughs> Just, and if I could add to the, your categories, uh, the ages comments, I'm curious also, you know, really too many of the comments here, I've been an investment maker for 15 years covering energy companies. I know a lot about both of them, but I can relate. But I guess one of the things I struggle with also is I've been doing this for a very long time, but I've been both young. Yes. And so I'd love to add a, that category of advice of how to make that kind of look. Yes, yes, I'm limited. Mm -hmm. so, I absolutely love this woman to get to say something because she's had her hand up right in front of me, and I don't want to not give her a shot. I'm an uh, engineer, class of 82, Susan Margulies, um, mechanical and aerospace. I'm now chair of biomedical engineering at Georgia Tech and Emory University. And now in my position, I'm hiring a lot of faculty. And your career moves, and you'd like to know when we talk about them. Because if I find out and I make an offer to a faculty member, and then I find out that I need to also find a job for the partner, I needed to know that I'm And we really have restrictions, and what the faculty candidates are told and what we're told as the hiring people, I, I think really is uh, creating a problem in really relocating partners. Yeah, why don't we pull it back on so, that because, oh, sorry. Can I make one? Okay. So this, uh, I'm Michelle Rian, I'm, I'm a physician, and this is a conversation I, I, I witnessed where um, a chair of a department was criticizing the new hire that, oh, she she um, negotiated really hard. And this was five seconds after he bragged about it, how he negotiated very hard and um, was so proud of how he handled himself with his show when he was a junior. And then another colleague, a male colleague, said to him, oh, well, that was probably her husband. And then it was okay. And I think the colleague had said that to defuse the situation for her, but it was really shocking to me that that was okay, that it was okay because the husband had been pushing the female position to negotiate hard, and then it was acceptable. Oh. Yeah. We have no shortage of <laughs> <laughs> You'll, you'd be able to hear the remainder of this uh, talk in a future episode. What you're about to hear is an excerpt from a talk where all the panelists were current female 
students at Princeton. Uh, <laughs> and so this is a clip of, you know, some interesting things that they had to say. So I think that some women, and especially I am reading summaries from the first class of at Princeton, felt that in class the preceptors or professors would always then ask for the women's perspective, and they felt a little bit that like that was a burden. But I think now it can be a burden, but it can also be a benefit. I do feel that being able to contribute something new and precept because I just think about this perspective is real positive. I do also feel that there's a bit of a pressure because if I don't say anything about the women's perspective, no one does. So there's the double-edged sword. But also, because I'm with my female professor and it's how important mentorship still is to undergraduates, um, I mentioned the lack of female professors. I have uh, written out that only 32% of the total faculty are women, 25% of full professors are women, and 19% of tenured professors are women. And the data they didn't kind of work on by gender is definitely worse for women of color because only about 5% of the faculty total are uh, identified in that those So that's really troubling for me because there's been research done that uh, female undergraduates actually benefit significantly from female mentors in particular. They did research with engineering students at UMass where they found that women who are paired with female mentors were way more likely to stay in the engineering major and pursue engineering jobs or postgraduate degrees after graduation. The women who were paired with male, male mentors had sort of mixed results. Some of them had positive experiences, but some of them also had negative experiences. It ties to that sort of concept that you can't do what you can't see. It's like what someone was saying. When you're looking up to the people who are where you want to be, if they don't represent you, if you can't see yourself in them, it's very hard to find a path to follow. So when such a small percentage of the female faculty Discussions and topics that can be hard to talk about and be you know, 
painful for people who do have to be aggressive with privilege. But I think that is the next step going forward. Because I've had a pretty great experience with this so far, so definitely that's a drawback. Um, so you'll hear someone referring to the next day when they start talking in this next clip. And I should note that this conference was right before the Kavanaugh decision was going to come out, like literally when I was there attending for those three days. I think it was the third day or the day after the third day. I feel like it was the third day. No, I think it was the day after the third day. One of those days was when um, the nation, the world learned that he would be a Supreme Court justice. But like the majority of the conference, right, the point I'm making uh, is that the majority of the conference um, had this like air of like tension, right? Because um, there was this like, feeling of like I don't know I don't know not him specifically but just like in general how do Ivy League colleges like filter out personalities that like I don't know because even though I was talking to someone there at one of the dinners who is like an admissions consultant and has worked with like admissions officers at Ivy League universities and like a very competitive, um, you know, market, the um, Chinese market. Um, and she was saying like that these schools don't really select people, they select applications. And that really struck a chord with me because like I mean, not like, you know, in reference to myself, but just like, not that I'm perfect, right? But if someone is really has like a immoral bent, they would have the self-awareness, especially if they're applying to a school like Princeton, to not reveal that <laughs> in their application, right? Because like, they would know at least, okay, I'm like this and I don't care. But I'm aware of the fact that socially this is not okay. Like, this is not viewed as acceptable by, like, most adults, right? Um, so, yeah, that's a little bit, you know, preamble and explanation for, you know, what you're about to hear. Okay, bye. So, I did the internet search and I found out it was actually on the third day that he was confirmed. Um, so, yeah. You know what I said earlier about the majority of the conference had this like thick air of just still holds. Even despite that, uh, I feel as though at that time when I was twenty one years old, I was still very hard for me to imagine at this moment in history, and here we are today, what's going to happen tomorrow, uh, that it's possible at your age to have that same optimism. I guess my question is, how and when in a university like this, in this time of history, um, do 
you still feel if we just keep fighting harder, things are going to improve, or is there a greater sense of um, discouragement, perhaps, than that old sense of the last one's here and just keep fighting? Just kind of, I, have, I do have adult children, I know, but their attitude is, I'm curious to hear from you, sort of, your, your hope level on a scale of one to ten. I don't think I've ever heard of an all-female acapella group, but Princeton has one, and I feel like I did hear of them actually when I was there, but didn't pay them any mind, but heard them at this conference, and now this is like a permanent addition to my podcast. The message, I'm not really, you know here for that but the sound Hey, you like podcasts. Know how they continue to exist? Ratings and reviews. Or the potentially foolish perseverance of the podcaster, i.e. myself. I prefer the former. Please rate and review this podcast. (laughs) Thank you very much. What did Anna think of Scivio? Yeah, I I wish you existed when I was entering, uh, you know, high school, college, and and whatnot. I wish I had listened to this kind of advice because I definitely I definitely relate. Like looking back, it's like, oh geez, why didn't I realize that? You know, why didn't I know this? And yeah. it's yeah, it's a common theme.
You know what's really amazing? The number of people I've spoken to in college and who've already left college, some of whom have been on my podcast, the Scovia podcast, who've told me they didn't know everything they learned about their college until they got there. One person even told me that their college didn't even allow them to look at the dorms before they started going to school there. Another told me that the tour guides know they're deceiving you, <laughs> at least at the school that he went to. Me, myself, there was so much I learned about Princeton before entering. And then it was only after being there for a year, two years, three years, four years that I realized there was so much more and there were things of so much greater importance that no one told me before I started. And so that's what Scivio is for. It's for people who don't want to <laughs> be tricked, basically, before they invest so much time and money, energy and efforts into a place who would rather have the insider's view before becoming an insider when it's too late and the only options you have left is to transfer stay or drop out the transfer rate is 38.5 percent uh that's nearly half of the people entering college who say oh i don't want to be here anymore Scivio is for that group of people it's for the people who who understand the value of communicating with someone currently at the school they're considering or who recently graduated from the school they're considering and who know that that person has no agenda. They're going to be upfront. They're going to tell you, uh, <laughs> they're going to tell you the real information. Who knows that Google and YouTube, sometimes they paint a very picturesque picture, but that's not necessarily accurate or current or relevant to who you are as a person. So what is Scivio? Scivio is where students video chat other students who are where they want to be. Someone literally through the camera on their phone can show you the dorm room that you could be living in when you're a freshman, or they could show you the dining hall you could be in when you're a sophomore, or they could show you how hard that molecular biology class that you're going to take when you first enter the department is. Maybe you just need to go over your application with someone who's actually attending the school you're applying to. I mean, I wish when I was applying, I could talk to someone in real time who was considering becoming an English major or who was already an English major, because that was the crux of my argument <laughs> regarding what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. They could show you all the things that some people just don't have the time or the foresight to share with other people. And they could show you that in real time. That's Scivio.